welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this is our second episode dedicated to the Fossbrother Saga, the saga of the Sworn Brothers. The continuing story of a pair of friends who are really fairly awful people, but who are unexpectedly compelling protagonists anyway. Is, is that us, John? Or is that the, the saga? I can't tell. <laughs> you think we're compelling? <laughs> oh, you're describing the saga. Then. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, in, in our last episode, we got to know two men, uh, Thorger Haverson and Thormod Berzeson, who are, well, not conventionally appealing people, if you really think about it. That's fair uh, to say. <laughs> but they are successful and skilled and rather lucky, John. And that counts for a lot in the sagas. Uh, you know, it still sounds like you could be describing us. Uh, this is a saga about two foster brothers who at the, actually at this point have dissolved their partnership mm-hmm. um, due to an awkward bit of small talk. Uh, now we're, we're going to have to follow them on their very different journeys as they make their way in the world without each other for the time being. But of course, before we get to where they're going, we should talk about where they've been. Oh no, here it comes. Let's talk about what happened. Last time on Saga Thing. Our story began with a wink and a nod to Greta's saga before introducing our two men about town, Thorger Haverson and Thormod Berzeson. The two are very different in personality, but similar in being utterly obnoxious to everyone who lives near them. Naturally, they become the best of pals, and eventually sworn blood brothers. Thorger the younger, and more homicidal of the pair, is soon called upon to avenge the death of his father after a fatal misunderstanding over a horse. Thorgeir kills his father's killer, beginning a career of carnage that will carve a gory swath through northern Europe. Thormod, meanwhile, begins taking notes for what will eventually be an epic poem of Thorgeir's life. The pair soon begin a business venture together with a fishing vessel and a dream of hunting whales. But it's not long before their taste for violence leads them back to the battlefield buffet. After killing a father and son pair of mischief makers as a favor to a local farmer, the sworn siblings are officially on the naughty list of Vermin Slender, the district chieftain. And it isn't long before Thorger adds fuel to the fire when he kills Vermin's cousin, Bootraldi, in spectacular fashion by spear skiing down a snowy slope to bury an axe in Bootraldi's chest. <laughs> the poo poo really hits the propeller when Thorger kills Thorgil's Marson, a popular man from a well connected family. Thorger is outlawed from Iceland but refuses to leave. Finally, Thorgir goes too far, even for his loyal blood brother, when he wonders aloud whether he or Thormod would win in a fight. The sworn brothers have a falling out over the question and go their separate ways. Now our story turns to their separate adventures as we turn to Force Brother Saga, Part 2, Chapters 8-13. to 13. So this saga's already burned through a lot of plot points that would be pretty important to most texts. Oh, yeah. Revenges, banishment, outlawry, a close bond broken by foolish words, you name it. Fortunately, saga authors are always willing to repeat a plot point if they think it worked well the first time. So it's not like we're in danger of running out of story. Oh, no, no. Uh, But there is a chance that we could end up wandering into some sections that seem a little, well, unoriginal. Yeah, sure. Uh, But what's pretty cool about this saga is the way it uses different saga conventions and set pieces to establish the diverging paths of the Sworn Brothers. Mm -hmm. This is uh, probably more end-of-the-episode talk, but there's some solid genre work going on here. 
Of course, you realize that just by saying that, you're also dragging us back into another discussion about literary and oral traditions. Not to mention, perhaps wandering down the dark and twisting back alleys of... Oh no. Manuscript studies. Who, me? No, 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 no. I, I just want to acknowledge that this author is either very, very late to the saga game and playing with established conventions, or he's early and building off of long-standing storytelling expectations. In other words, literary and oral traditions. Yeah. So you're, yeah. you're just sneaking them in like vegetables in a kid's Happy Meal. That's ah, good for you. Eat up. <laughs> I, I just want to alert folks to be thinking about a couple of other saga archetypes as we read this. Okay. Uh, one is the outlaw hero, and the mm. other is the warrior poet. Definitely. Uh, in practical terms, that just means we're going to be seeing a few more familiar story elements in this episode and in the next episode. Yeah, well, last time we got variations on whale carcass brawls and downhill skiing with axe murder. Uh, I think most readers would be okay with that. Yeah, I, I could see that, yeah. <laughs> now, you said this and next episode. Uh, there's been some, some troubles in the uh, organizing of these episodes. Uh, you want to explain <laughs> what's going on? Uh, sure. We looked at this part of the saga and we realized it's actually telling two unrelated stories for a while. Mm-hmm. So we're breaking the narrative into two slightly shorter episodes, starting at that moment when Thorger and Thormod separated at the end of our last episode. Mm-hmm. So this episode will follow the exploits of Thorger, and we'll use the next episode to talk about what Thormod gets up to. Mm-hmm. And whether these will actually be quicker episodes or not, uh, that remains to be seen. But we're going to well, give a college try. Absolutely. Anyway, so we left off with Thormod. Uh, he left the partnership after taking offense at Thorgir's speculation about which of them would win in a fight. And as you said, it's it's an awkward bit of small talk. And to be clear, they, they didn't fight over which of them would win. No, no. Uh, Thorgir just brought it up, and Thormod took offense at the idea of the question. It's because he knows his partner. <laughs> right, exactly. And you said last time, means. yeah, the problem is one of psychology, right? Thorgir yeah. doesn't see a problem with a question about them fighting as long as he doesn't actually attack Thormod, while Thormod regards the question as expressing a thought that Thorgir just hasn't acted on yet. So, uh, John, are we, we, we going to ask the obvious question that follows after that which which is well, i mean which one of us would win in a fight <laughs> uh, i have to assume that regardless of the outcome the real winner would be the friends we made along the way <laughs> all right then uh, are we ready to crack the books then let's get to it part seven two roads diverge again so Let's just get this over with right away. We left off at the end of Chapter 7 with Thormod and Thorgir splitting their partnership over that question from Thorgir. Here in Chapter 8, we begin with Thormod and Thorgir splitting their partnership over Thorgir's question. Hmm. Did did you hear that echo? Or was that a minor time slip? Did you jump in the Denorian again? (laughs) No, 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 no. no. Uh, It's just that we can no longer trust the linear nature of narrative Uh or a consistent authorial voice. I see you've been watching Loki. Yes, I have. We're dealing with the first major signpost on that twisty road into the labyrinthine world of manuscript studies. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, I mean, it's about time. I mean, we, we teased that earlier. Actually, we teased it a few times in the last episode and it never really came up. But here we are. 
It's called dramatic foreshadowing. Mm, okay. Huh. I thought I got a thunderclap there. Uh, no, no. no, it was important that we establish that right away because it really does shape how we're reading the whole saga. So there are several manuscripts which contain some or most of Foster Brothers Saga. Most of them are very similar to each other but are missing bits of information here or there or are essentially fragments of the text. The versions of the saga in Moldervella book or Flottier book and the bit in the Codex Regius are all part of that tradition. They're characterized by those digressions into moral and medical subjects and the extensive use of poetry. Okay, yeah. Uh, and that's the more ornate style that some people have argued is evidence of a late-blooming sophistication in saga writing. Mm-hmm. Well, others believe that it is a sign of early long-windedness that was rejected in later saga writing. So, The eye of the beholder is a fickle beast, isn't it? Isn't it, though? Uh, and the last manuscript, the Hauksbok, is really, it's quite different. It's simpler in style, less reliant on ornate poetry, and it has very few digressions in Christian moralizing. Right, which to follow that earlier logic can be seen as evidence of an early saga in a genre that's still feeling its way to a literary style, or it can be seen as a later, leaner saga that shows authors stripping away narrative bloat or continental moralizing. Yeah, but these versions of False Brother Saga, they aren't just differentiated by their style. There are entire stories that are missing from one version or the other of the saga, and it gets very confusing. Yeah, and there's also sections that tell the same story in a different way. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes. So this is one of those moments. In the last chapter, the Sworn Brothers broke up their partnership and went their separate ways, and that's that. The rest of the year is treated as incident-free. Thormod goes home to his dad. Thorger continues fishing. But in a second version of that story, which is included here in Chapter 8 in the edition that we're reading from Martin Regal, uh, we've got another event right after the brothers split apart. Thorger, riding away from the argument with Thormod, can't find the company of men led by his cousins, uh, Thorgils and Elugi. And when a passing man doesn't respond quickly enough to Thorger's shouted demand for information about his friends... Thorgir spears the man through the chest and kills him. As one does. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is really a minor difference, though. Tell that to the dead guy. <laughs> a minor difference in the text, I mean. Yes. Um, our editor-translator, uh, Martin Regal, has put together the version that we're reading by choosing a path through the different versions of the story. And he's relying most heavily on the Mothravala book, uh, the, that version of the story. Um, He uses interpolations, though, from the other manuscripts, and most notably, he uses about seven significant chunks of the Flatair book, and this is one of those. Right, and and then for the later chapters, he switches to the Hawks book version, but continues to offer parallel versions of the story along with the main narrative, Mm -hmm. (laughs) all of which makes our jobs explaining this saga that much more interesting. Yeah, well, especially when we come to judgments and we have to decide which of the Thorgir comments and quips. Uh, yes, what <laughs> counts as a quote when you have different iterations of the yeah, same person? Yeah, exactly, man. There's there's a good one in this in this uh, <laughs> section we're going to be doing. Whew. Um, and look, uh, we recognize that most people have limited interest in these things. I mean, well, I mean, sure. Although it is really a very interesting and quite literally subtextual issue that we ought to talk about. Limited interest, John. Limited interest. Remember, know, we, we just uh, we just started. We, we, we claimed we were starting the conversation, and here we are, not right, conversating. So, well, what we're, <laughs> <laughs> what 
will allow me to conversate. All right. Uh, what we're going to do is just keep track of when those interpolations add useful information or supplying missing anecdotes from the main text. And that's what we have here. Yeah. So part of this conversation is about the story, and we should return to that story because Thorgir is writing fast, and supposedly he's writing fast because he's trying to catch up to his cousins and their traveling party. Right, yeah, they're actually kind of a bodyguard for him. Uh, yeah. Remember, after he killed Thorger's Marson in the last episode, Thorger got outlawed. Uh, traveling on his own is dangerous. Sure, yes. Uh, so he's also riding hard because he's just had a painful argument with maybe the only person he actually likes and the only person mm. that really likes him. Mm-hmm. And he's already looking for a way to blow off some steam. And, and then he sees this guy walking along the path with a load of kindling and... The guy seemingly ignores Thorgir when he asks a question. Mm-hmm. And you know Thorgir, that's that's all the excuse that he needs to work off his frustration by running the man through. Yeah. So Thorgir rides away, leaving the body there on the path. And when he finally catches up with his cousins, he tells them what he did. And as the saga tells us, his cousins were not pleased with this deed. <laughs> well, I mean, you can see their point here. Yes, yes. Um, among other things, what Thorgir did isn't a killing from a technical standpoint. It's uh, it's straight up murder. Oh, legally? Oh, definitely a murder. Uh, Thorgir doesn't cover the body after the killing. He doesn't report the killing to a nearby farm. He doesn't have a defensible reason even to look at the poor guy funny, let alone skewer him. Yeah. Murder most foul, I call it. Mm. Uh, okay. Now, let's look at this story from a different angle. Like what? How about from the point of view of the victim? Okay. By the way, he has a name. It's not much of a name, but it's all his. He's Torvi Bundle. Torvi Bundle. Bundle is his name. Yeah, that's correct. Yes. Okay. The guy who's walking along the path carrying a bundle of sticks Mm -hmm. is also known, according to the saga author, as Torvi Bundle. Yeah. See, this is the kind of thing that makes people suspicious about whether this version of the story is early or late or written or oral. Well, you can see why. I mean, a mm-hmm. guy only shows up for one quick paragraph, gets killed, and his nickname is the thing he's carrying. Yeah, no, it's it's like having a Norwegian companion named Expendable Red Shirtson. Yes, yes, of the Trondheim Red Shirtsons, yes. Yes, uh, it's a dumb movie trope too, right? People being listed in the credits for playing Punk with Mohawk or yeah. Knife Fighter. Dorothy uh, Bundle. Right. Bundle man. Uh, But this isn't a dumb saga thing. There's something else at work here. No, this is a dumb saga thing. It's a podcast. I I mean, (laughs) Uh, this item is not a a characteristic of dumb sagas. How's that? Okay. Uh, Because it's definitely literary. And so whether it's early or late actually matters. Yeah, because it bears on whether sagas are originally from an oral or written tradition, which is a big question. Exactly, yeah. But we've already kind of gone over all that. So we can just say that Torvi, the conveniently named bundle, serves a clear narrative function. Right? Thorger's angry, hurt, and looking for ways to lash out. As opposed to before, when he was pretty cheerful, still looking for excuses to kill people. They grow up so fast. Don't they? Uh, oh, there's another thing. Uh, the narrative tells us that it's a windy day. Yes. Uh, and because Torvi's got this big bundle of twigs and sticks he's carrying on his back and the wind is rustling and whistling through the twigs, he never actually heard Thorger calling out to him. So this guy, Torvi Bundle, we'll call him. Yeah. He's just alone in the outback, thinking, 
deep thoughts and looking forward to getting back home in time for supper. Thinking about his good lady who's going to mm-hmm. welcome him, his family. Mrs. Bundle. Mrs. Bundle. Uh, yep. Uh, yeah, the poor the, the poor guy. The first indication this bastard has that if there's anyone else present is Thorger running a spear through him. Oh, wow. Uh, his only consolation, I suppose, is that a nearby stream is named uh, Bogulak, uh, Bundle Stream, in his honor. Well, in his bundle's honor. I mean... It's true. <laughs> it's, he he and the stream get named after a bundle of kindling. So, uh, so maybe sad. not such a consolation after all. No, well, <laughs> wow. Okay. So at this point, Thorgar is just killing on the slightest provocation. What a guy. Mm. Uh, or, you know, actually, uh, on even imaginary provocations, he wasn't yeah, attacked so. or provoked by this guy in any way. Nope. He just didn't like the look of him. Yep. Not great news for anyone who crosses his path. No, and speaking of which... Ooh. Part 8. Poised for the blow. <laughs> so you expect me to hear that title and not say anything? What have we said? What have we said? Mm. <laughs> All right. Oh. <laughs> At this point, Thorgar has been an outlaw for most of a year. But neither he nor anyone else he knows is acting like it. Yeah. He's continuing to fish, travel around with his cousins, murder occasional randos. <laughs> pretty much exactly the way he's been living his life before outlawry. Right. I mean, the only real difference is that he's doing it without Thormod now. And that yeah. that is a difference because if there was any kind of a governor on Thorgo's personality, it was his friendship with Thormod. Uh, when Thormod left, any remnants of Thorgir's self-restraint went with him. As we'll see. Yeah. So, Thorgir is roaming the land with his cousins, Thorgils and Ilugi Arison. And when the cousins decide to attend the Althing, Thorgir goes with them as an anonymous member of their retinue, which is yeah. insane. Yeah, well, partly because Thorgir isn't really good at anonymous. <laughs> Not his strong suit, no. No, he likes attention. And it's not long before Trouble finds him again. One morning, the cousins and their men break camp, and Thorgair discovers that his horse is missing. See, that's bad. That That's bad enough. But mm-hmm. this isn't just any horse. This is like a Lamborghini horse. Yeah, it's... There's actually a description of the horse in the saga. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is large and beautiful and colorful. Mm-hmm. And it's got a good temperament and a beautiful russet coat. Mm-hmm. Everyone admires Thorgair's sweet ride. Yeah. This horse actually but, has two horsepower. <laughs> which is crazy. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Which I suppose but, is yeah, how many horsepower Slepner has. Yeah, he comes out and, and he, he's wondering, where, where is my horse? But no one knows what happened to it. And Thorgair is obviously furious, but he doesn't really have any choice. He shifts some gear to another animal, gets on a pack horse to continue the journey. But then... Just as they're heading out, Thorgir's friends spot a man riding a large, russet horse that's quite lovely, mm-hmm. and he's driving a herd of sheep. Now, there is more than one russet horse in Iceland, right? I mean, I mean, who, maybe. Who'd be stupid enough to steal Thorgir's horse and then ride it right back past him? Well, I'm glad you asked, John. The, the gentleman's <laughs> name is Bjarni Skufason, uh-huh. and... He's driving the sheep to his father, Skulf's farm at Hundedal. And yes, he took Thorgeir's horse. Ah, so that's not great. Is is he a fool? 
Well, not really. I mean, he just doesn't seem to know who Thorgeir is. Uh-huh. He took the horse because the sheep are new to the farm and were in danger of wandering off, and he was in a hurry. So he's like, I'm going to get this okay. horse. So so at this point, presumably, he's returning the horse. Apologies mm-hmm. all around. No harm done. Well, no, no. That's oh. not really how oh. things work. You know, he rides the horse all the way to his father's farm. Uh-huh. And Thorgeir isn't positive at first that it's his horse, so that complicates things. Yeah, a I mean, bit. even he can't believe anyone would have this kind of nerve. And it's far away in the early light, so it's hard to tell. Mm. But he keeps a watch on the rider, and he and his cousins follow him all the way to Scuff's farm. Right, and there's a there's a detail there that I really like. When Thorger and his cousins approach the sheepfold where the rider is stopped, Thorgils and Alugi are careful to instruct their men not to allow the horses to graze on the grass in the yard. Mm-hmm. They want to make absolutely sure that they're in the legal right here. Well, I mean, that's all well and good, but they are still traveling with an outlaw who's in a rage about his stolen horse. So that, you know, part of wisdom is knowing how to accept the things you cannot change, Andy. <laughs> right. So they enter the yard and find Bjarni Skuvason still mounted on Thorgir's horse and overseeing the penning of the sheep. And Thorgir wastes no time on pleasantries. He says... Oh, how did he sound? What was his voice? <laughs> That's your job. I know, John, I know you said that it was, uh, you know, like at the beginning of the last episode, you're like, we're going to get so many episodes done in the summertime. It's summer now. <laughs> look at you, look at us. Look at us now. Yeah. Now it's been so long, I can't even remember what the voice sounds like. What, what does that have to do with the voice of Thorger? Oh, yeah. It was uh, it was <laughs> my, like, my, my Clint Eastwood blend, I believe. Right, right. <laughs> he said... Who is it that sits on this horse? His name is Bjarni, says Bjarni. <laughs> He's very uh, open and optimistic, it mm-hmm. seems. Well, that's a fine-looking horse. Who does it belong to? Yeah, you're quite right. It's a good-looking horse, but I couldn't tell you who it belongs to. Well, then why'd you take it? Well, I preferred to ride rather than walk. I mean, f- t- to be fair, good answer, Bjarni. Yep. I tell you, everybody gets a chance at a good line or two in this saga. I think it'd be a good idea for you to get down off that horse now and give it back to its owner. Hmm. No, I don't agree. I uh, I won't be using the horse much longer since I won't be riding farther than the door to my own house. No, I think you're going to get down off that horse immediately. Punk. No, I don't think so. <laughs> Uh, it's not going to hurt the horse if I ride it up to the house. The gall of this guy. Man. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. you got to love He's him. got no idea who he's talking to. Nope. Wow. Well, he's going to learn. Well, Thorger says, <laughs> I'm going to have to insist that you don't go a step further. And uh, then he drives his spear right through Bjarni's torso. And uh, Bjarni, you know, he, he doesn't survive. Uh, he, he passes before he yeah. hits the ground, which is, yeah. you know, good for him. Yeah. Uh, we've been uh, talking about how unhinged Thorger is getting, but I mean, we have to say this is about as close to a justified homicide as he gets. Yes. By saga standards, this is extreme provocation. It, it really is. Yeah. But it looks like Thorger killing another man on flimsy pretext. And when the farm's shepherd sees what's happening, well, he grabs an axe and charges at Thorger while Thorger is still pulling his spear out of Bjarni's body and... Well, the shepherd very mm-hmm. nearly kills Thorgir, actually. It's it's impressive. Yeah. yeah. He comes a lot closer than anybody else has. Yeah, so yeah. Far. at the last second, Thorgir gets his spear shaft up to block the blow. Then he, 
he scrambles and grabs his axe from his belt and he, well, he kills the shepherd with a blow to the head. He splits, yeah, he, he you, you sound kind of down about it, Andy. I feel bad for the shepherd. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you should because he gets his head split he does. in half. Uh, which uh, which means Thorgir is committed to more right. killings. Yeah, well, Thorgir's cousins get him out of there in a hurry, and they rush back to their home where mm-hmm. they report the killings to the chieftains. And then they make plans to get Thorgir to a ship and finally out of Iceland for a while. Now, meanwhile, right. everyone's furious about the killings, especially Bjarni's father, Skuf. Well, he would be, wouldn't it's he? It's understandable. You know, he has lost a son. <laughs> but the chieftains mm-hmm. are able to talk him into a, a compensation settlement, partly because, well, Thorgils and Alugi are important figures, and partly because Thorgir is already an outlaw, so honestly, his yeah. options are rather limited. Like, what are you going to do? He's an outlaw. Are you going to outlaw I mean, him? <laughs> he, he, he could try a revenge killing. Very limited, really. I mean, yeah. that said, he is given self-judgment in terms of the amount of the settlement, so his son and Shepard are generously compensated. Okay, so the thing about this entire sequence is that we've seen it before. In a couple of sagas, yeah. No, in this saga. <laughs> uh, yes. We, we, kind of, we kind of skipped over it in the last episode, but this is exactly how Thorgir's father, Havar, yes. died. Except in reverse. Mm-hmm. A man, Yolth, took Havar's horse and refused to give it back because he wanted to finish riding it home. When Havar grabbed the horse's reins, Yolth drove a spear through his chest. Mm. So what does that mean? Well, for starters, it means that Thorgir knows to strike first in these situations. True. Uh, but it's also another example of that writtenness, mm-hmm. uh, the structured quality of this saga. Right? I mean, this isn't just a coincidence. The dialogue is almost word for word the same. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, really, this whole next section of the saga has that quality. There are several stock motif mm-hmm. incidents with Thorgir meeting various people and then... Killing them. Spoiler alert. <laughs> All right, let's have another example. Well, I mean, actually, the next one is a little bit odd. And I'm not talking about a, an Icelander named Odd. I'm saying it's strange. Oh, it's, boy. It's another interpolation from the Flatair book. Oh, this one. Yeah, go ahead. So we just said that Thorgils and Elugi have decided the best way to deal with Thorgir is to get him on a ship to Norway and then, frankly, to wash their hands of him. The text doesn't mm-hmm. say that in so many words. But that's about what it amounts to. In the Moldervella yeah. book version, uh, that's how it goes exactly. They deliver him to his ship and tell everyone else there's not much to be done about a man who's already outlawed. And that's it. But uh, Flatair book inserts another event on the way to the ship. And it's, it's one that offers a darker version of the man that Thorgir is becoming. Yeah. You mean darker than a man who's killed several times already... And indirectly speculated about killing his best friend as well. Oh, very much so, yes. You see, in the Flatair book version, uh, Thorgir rides ahead of the rest of the group and eventually gets out of sight up ahead. And so he's alone when he comes to a group of men in a hayfield. The group are chatting at the end of a hard day's work and the shepherd in the group is slumped a bit with his head leaning forward. And mm-hmm. I think, well, well, John, I think we need to just let the saga take it from here. Okay. When Thorgir saw that, he drew his axe as he rode by and let it fall on the man's neck. The axe bit mm-hmm. and the head went flying off and landed some little distance away. Thorgir rode on and the other men stood helpless and shocked, as they might, 
in that situation. Yeah, as you would, yeah. Soon Thorgils and Ilugi came by. They were told what had happened and were not pleased. They provided compensation. They're often not pleased right. when they hear about what he's Well, that's a real about. bummer, guys. I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I am so sorry about that. Now, they provided compensation for Thorgir's deed on the spot and then rode on to meet him. He greeted them cheerfully, and they asked him why he'd killed the shepherd, what possible fault he'd found with the man. He said, He committed no wrong against me. If you want the truth, well, I just couldn't resist the temptation. He stood so well poised for the blow. <laughs> See, that's awful. That's really awful. Well, yeah. I did say this was going to get dark, but... No, but, yeah, but this is as depraved as almost anything we've seen in the sagas. Uh, yeah. Violence is part of these stories. Of course it is. And it's usually a result of the felt demands of honor, or else it's a manifestation of an unjust man's viciousness. Mm-hmm. This is just cold. I mean, you can just... You can hear from that line how dead Thorgir's eyes would be as he said it. So you can hear his eyes. That's interesting, John. You, you know what I mean. Yes, yeah, I do. Uh, yeah, Thorgir is descending into a really disturbing place at this point. Mm-hmm, yeah, uh, but only depending on which manuscript we're talking about, right? I'm not sure that the thunderclap is necessary there, but uh, but yeah, yeah, that's true. So if we just read the Mothravatla book uh, version of the story, Thorgir's only real dust-up in this part of his life comes with a man who stole his horse which is entirely justifiable by saga standards. I mean, sure, yeah, and it's an echo of the way that his father died, which has a sort of structural parallelism to it that doesn't really pay off because this killing of the horse thief isn't terribly important, but that's neither here nor there. But still, I think the point we're trying to make is that in the Mothervala book version, Thorgar striking first at this man is completely understandable. Right, and legally, again, he's dealing with a man who has stolen his horse, so he's, yeah. he's on the windy side of the law. But once you add in the Flatter book version of his life, suddenly he's assassinating kindling carriers and lopping the heads off innocent men because he gets a wild hair. It's a great example of how different iterations of a saga can tell very different stories about their protagonists without really changing the parameters of their story. True. I mean, that's a fair point. But it's not like Thorgir is a choir boy in any manuscript. Oh, no, no. I mean, if whether you're looking at the Flater book or the Mothrella book, he's still a multiple murderer who's driven away almost mm. everyone who cares about him, mm. and he even managed to get himself outlawed for killing a man over a whale carcass. Sure, no. Uh, this is a point about authorial shaping of a narrative. But okay, let's, let's get back to the main narrative. So now that Thorgir's managed one last killing on his way out of the country, mm -hmm. he's just uh, getting on a ship at Iceland, huh? Yes, and, you know, speaking of the whale carcass incident, uh, do you remember why Thorgir got outlawed for that one? Uh, well, we said he killed a man. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he attacked and killed Thorgil's Marson, who was a lot more well-connected than any of Thorgir's other enemies up to that point. That's exactly right, yes. Thorgil's also had a lot of important relatives, which is... Part of the well-connected thing. And it turns out that the ship Thorgir's booked passage on has another passenger. A large and hard-fighting man named Gaut Sleitason. Hey, the more the merrier on a long ocean voyage, is what I say. Well, you see, uh, Gaut is, uh, or Gaut is a cousin of Thorgil's Mausen. Oh, dear. 
Yeah. Well, that is awkward. It is, yes, but only briefly because the ship's captain immediately refuses to take them both on board at the same time. That's a smart man. In in the end, Galt's uh, stuff is tossed off the ship and he has to ride off to look for another ride to Norway. Right. Now, now that's not super important right now, but but just you wait about two or three podcast episodes and that little anecdote is going to pay off big. So a guy named Galt Slayson exists. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So is that going to pay off, John, do you think? It's not, no. Uh, But we will see Galt again uh, later. So, you know, he'll be back. For now, Thorger has a rough passage to Norway due to heavy seas, and the ship runs off course. They eventually sight land ahead, but the Norwegian crew recognizes it as Ireland, and they aren't sure about their welcome here. Yeah, this is something we can handle pretty quickly. Uh, They're right. Irish people (laughs) in the 11th century, they're not super happy to see a Norwegian ship come sailing out of nowhere. Can't imagine why. What's a a couple of centuries of Viking raids among friends? (laughs) Yeah, they're like... Didn't we just clean this Viking mess up? (laughs) Which is why all the Irishmen on shore immediately call their friends, and the sailors are confronted with a small army of men carrying so many spears it looks like a small forest. So uh, they're not staying in Ireland, are they? They will not. They, uh, They back row as fast as they honorably can. And they take advantage of the first favorable breeze to sail away. Sail away, sail away, uh, Presumably sail yelling, away. you're lucky, as they go. Uh, now, they eventually... Did you <laughs> Did you just sail away? I did. I did. Uh, they eventually make landfall a few days later in Denmark, uh, where Thorger has a fine time for a while and earns a tremendous reputation there. Yeah, they don't know about the headless shepherd in Denmark, do they? No, I suspect they oh, don't. No. Uh, after a while, Thorger catches another ship to finally get to Norway, and when he gets there, he immediately makes for King Olaf's hall to present himself. Mm. That also goes well, and Thorger is quickly accepted as one of the king's retinue. Someone should really tell them about all the murders and trouble that he's caused. Well, I mean, that's the advantage of traveling to a new place, right? It's like going to college. You get to reinvent yourself. <laughs> I didn't kill anyone. Uh, I'm a straight-A <laughs> student. That's the ticket. Uh, yeah. yeah, don't check on that. Uh, so for the next decade or so, Thorger splits his time between Iceland and Norway and builds a strong friendship with King Olaf. So a reinvention complete, I guess. Mm. All he has to do now is avoid trouble. Yeah, about that. Part 9. An Icelandic outlaw in King Olaf's court. So all right. Let's, uh, let's pull back the curtain for a second here and say that we're reordering the text slightly at this point. Yeah. Uh, we just finished talking about chapter 8 of the saga, where Thorger kills a few people and then goes to Norway. Uh, but the saga at this point moves over to talk about Thormod Bersesson for a while and then returns to pick up Thorger's story at the point we're at now. So if you're reading along with this saga, uh, this is just to let you know that you didn't skip a page or lose your place. Right. Uh, in the interest of making this story more podcast-friendly, we're going to jump ahead to Chapter 12, which picks up Thorger's half of the story again. And we'll go back and talk about Thormod's adventures in the uh, in the next episode. Yeah, but don't worry. We've got so much left. If you're looking at your, your podcast app and thinking, like, why, is, why are we only halfway <laughs> through? I, I don't really know, to be honest with you, but I bet we're going to keep going. <laughs> anyway, so we left Thorger having remade himself as a loyal and valued supporter of King Olaf. Uh, uh, and he seems to be serious about this new chapter of his life. Yeah. 
but trouble has a way of following Thorger like a bad smell. Well, I mean, he is a serial killer. Uh, that might be another reason. Ah, tomato potato. So <laughs> on one of his trips back to Iceland, Thorger and a friend are running a few errands and buying some Icelandic goods. They load up a couple of pack horses with supplies, make a stop to visit Thorger's cousins, and then make their way down to Borgafjord. It's a lovely trip. Just lovely. Uh, but mm. one day, as they're passing the farm of a man named Hakil Snorri, the pack horses make a break for it, and they start grazing in Snorri's field. Thorger chases after them, but while he's running after one horse, Snorri the farmer comes out of his home and sees the other horse grazing in his field. Now, Snorri is a known troublemaker. Mm. Uh, he's described in the saga as strongly built and a fine figure of a man, but well. he has a cruel face a bad temper, and a tendency to hold grudges. Right, he's just the guy you want to have catch you letting your horses grab a snack in his backyard. Yeah, well, Snorri's not much on seeing the other guy's point of view, you see. Mm -hmm. uh, he goes back into his house without a word, grabs a barbed spear. He calls it his business spear. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he runs at the pack horses, stabbing first one and then the other. Should, uh, should have, he should have brought his party spear. Uh, <laughs> no, that's right. I didn't think it was possible at this point in the story, but this saga has actually produced an antagonist we can root for Thorger against. Yes. A horse-abusing jerk with a mean face. Yes, and to be clear, Snorri wounds both animals, but he hasn't actually killed them yet. That's important. No, no, but they're both bloodied, and, well, Thorger's never far from resorting to violence in the first place. And he's <laughs> not, I mean, no. He's not about to try reason discourse with a man who's stabbing his horses. He leaps in front of Snorri with shield and axe combo in his left hand and a spear in his right. Mm -hmm. They uh, they clash for a moment, and then Snorri and his business spear retreat toward a sheepfold in the corner of the yard. Now, meanwhile, two of Snorri's farmhands have seen the fight, and they rush in, both carrying axes. So this is right. getting messy. Yeah, but Thorgir now takes advantage of Snorri's retreat to face these new attackers squarely, and he wounds both with his long spear before they can get close enough to attack him. Yeah, and their attack turns into a very hasty retreat. Right. A dignified, them, a dignified retreat. They're like, we're going to move back. <laughs> He's very strong. Uh, both of them join Snorri in the sheepfold. Um, right. The building, there. This building has a low, narrow doorway, and with three of them in there, there's no way for Thorgir to get at them. They feel safe. <laughs> right. So essentially, we've got three guys hiding in the bicycle shed behind the house. Yes, yes. Okay, now let's consider this next moment a bit of a personality test. Uh, for me? I hope not. For, for anyone. Uh, okay. So, yes, for you. So, Andy, you're Thorger. Okay. You've just fought off three men, wounded two of them, and forced them into a small sheep hut where they're hiding but also covering the door thoroughly. Pop quiz, hot shot. No, no, just a regular question. Huh. Do you, A... Except that you've made your point and ride away. Well, I mean, that doesn't sound... Oh, hang, hang on. Am I me in this scenario or am I Thorgir? Because I know what Thorgir is going to do. You're a, you're a generic person. No, no insult oh. intended. <laughs> Thank you so much, John. <laughs> I am a generic person. Are you, are you being gray now? Yes. I'm just a generic guy. Mm -hmm. Driving a Ford Escort. So what would the generic guy do? Hey... <laughs> Do they, what would the generic would, guy do at this point? Do they even make Ford Escorts anymore? I have no idea. I don't think they do. Not a not a car guy. Well, if 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 I'm me, 
I probably do that. But there's no way that Thorgar leaves things hanging like this. No way. Correct. Uh, so option B, you could demand compensation for the wounds to your pack animals. I mean, well, maybe I would do that. That's kind of a cool thing to do. You get a little cash. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's not really Thorgar's style. No, not going to okay. do that. Um, how about option C? You can challenge Snorri to come out and face you one-on-one. Well, I mean, we're getting closer to what I think Thorgar would do. Is, is there an option for setting fire to the sheep hut with them inside and then hacking them apart as they flee? Maybe. Wow. Um, let's call that option D. I mean, it's been done before and it's pretty, yeah. you know, it, it mm-hmm. gets the job done. Yeah, true. But it still gives Thorgar credit for being a strategic thinker. True. Thorgir is going with option E. That's a lot of options. Option E is jump on top of the hut and start tearing the roof apart with your bare hands. <laughs> yes. That sounds like our boy, yeah. Thorgir. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, though, there there's at least one man armed with a long spear in the hut, mm-hmm. which means that as soon as Thorgir rips a hole in the roof, Snorri stabs him through the hole. Oh. Well, that sounds awful. Well, yeah, it's uh, not great. Yeah, no, uh, look, nobody said Thorgir was a genius. Uh, he's got turf, wads of turf in both rolling, hands. Uh, are you rolling dice over there? No, it's the, the, the other the other uh, headphone thing. Just That sounded like a D4. <laughs> there you go. How's that? <laughs> What'd uh, you get, a three? Did you get a three? Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, so, um... There's this this problem of uh, Thorgir sort of being up there and being a, a very easy target. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he gets this spear, uh, but it's fortunately not too bad of a wound. Uh, although it does really put the capper on Thorgir's mental state. Uh, at this point, he flings his own spear down, grabs his axe, and starts hacking up chunks of turf and hacking away at Snorri's spear every time it stabs up at him. This has got to be a terrifying scene for the men inside the hut. And Mm -hmm. it only gets worse a couple of minutes later when Snorri's spear is chopped in half. And then Thorgir comes crashing down through the shredded roof. Here's Thorgir! Uh, Yeah, no, uh, Thorgir leads with his axe and he catches Snorri on the crown of the head as he lands, splitting his skull down to the chest and killing him instantly. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a moment of what must be absolutely terrifying battle in the confines of this collapsing sheep hut. Uh, but after another minute, both the farmhands are also dead, and Thorgir comes staggering out of the ruins, presumably pressing a hand to his spear wound. Yeah, don't don't uh, skip the best line there. The author mm-hmm. says that uh, Thorgir turned to Snorri's farmhands, striking at them with the axe that had bid many a man good night. <laughs> It's good writing. It's great. Uh, it's nice. That's great writing. Uh, and that's, that's all she wrote, really. Uh, yeah. he, he sticks his head in at the farmhouse to tell them that Snorri wants to talk to them all out at the sheep hut. Then he hops on his horse and rides away. Oh, and uh, both of the pack horses do survive, so that's nice. Yeah. No animals were harmed during the making of the saga. Well, we're not done with the saga yet. Well, I mean, uh, we're oh, not harming I mean, it's fair animals. Uh, as always, Thormud is quoted with a verse about the fight, even though he's Obviously not there. He heard about it. Mm-hmm. Warrior of the bloodied sword, who repays in kind the harm he suffers, made all haste to Snorri, the son of Hakil, and there did battle. 
Three men he slew outright, aspiring to an even braver show. Of this seafarer's deeds I have heard the proven truth. Mm. I like that he's still trying to peddle the idea that Thorgir is a seafarer. It's like like me know. you know, constantly adding into the poem at your funeral that John was an elite computer technician. <laughs> I mean, if you say it often enough, right? He it's knew his a, way around a mouse, did John Sexton. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, he a did. A dab hand. Uh, a click yeah. here, a click there, and new worlds were born. Absolute What? Oh. <laughs> I think the idea here is if you say it often enough, it still won't be true. So I don't, uh, I don't think there's, there's nowhere well, to go In my experience, this. yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, and there's a brief tie-in at this point with the saga Corpus, if you like. Oh, good. Yeah, the author goes on a little digression about Snorri's young son, Helgi, who ends up with a feud against Thorstein Aelson later in life. Right, this is the son of Ael Scott Grimson. That's right, yes. Thorstein shows up in quite a few sagas as a connecting figure, if we trust the saga's version of his life. And uh, mm-hmm. he's a pretty busy guy. Um, I'm glad I grabbed him as Thingman, because he's a central uh-huh. figure in a lot of people's lives. Yeah, and uh, who was it who got his dad? I can't remember. Uh, I don't even remember who his dad was. His dad yeah, was... Yeah, some guy. Uh, yeah, so Thorgir returns to Norway, but it's uh, it's not long before he has to turn around and head right back to Iceland again. I mean, who stabbed his horse this time? What's up? No, no. Uh, although no one will be surprised to hear there is violence involved. Mm. Out in the west fjords of Iceland is a place called Steingrimsfjörður. And in Steingrimsfjörður is a man named Thorarofrofa. And to forestall the obvious question, yes, he is a violent and overbearing person who isn't well-liked. This saga really takes a dim view of humanity, doesn't it? It's almost <laughs> as if I wrote it. I, well, we're, we're catching a lot of characters on their worst days, let's say <laughs> Aren't that. we, though? Uh, Thorer gets into an argument one day at the local market with another man and ends up fighting him. The man is badly wounded, not killed, but badly wounded. But Thorer considers himself justified, and so there's no compensation settlement. Now, this wouldn't be especially relevant to our story, except that the man Thor attacked is an agent of King Olaf. Uh-oh. And King Olaf doesn't like it when people poke holes in his agents. No. No, ask Snorri Sturluson. It's, it's, yes, it's, uh, it's rather like Thorgir and his pack horses. <laughs> yes. Well, lucky for the king, he's got a loyal follower who doesn't mind a little constructive violence and who knows his way around the Westfjords. And uh-huh. rumor has it that he's a pretty good sailing man as well. Oh, no, no, no. Don't you fall for Thorma's propaganda. <laughs> Sorry, the poets have spoken. Thorgir is a great sailor. Mm. And they're saying, Thorgir, the famed mover of mass stallions, knows his way around a square-rigged longship. Oh, that man couldn't get a bar of soap across a large bathtub. But have it your <laughs> way. So the, the king dispatches Thorgir to Iceland to avenge his agent's wounds. As he puts it, I want you to make it so that people there will think twice before attacking my men. And Thorgir says, I think I can handle this vengeance for you. And after all, I am obliged to do as you bid me. And the saga doesn't specifically say so, but I have to assume he follows that up with a a menacing laugh. Something like, Uh, That's that's, that's what you think a menacing laugh sounds like? (laughs) I mean, in this case, Thorgir, yes. that's. I mean, possibly a person who's trying to be menacing in the middle of an asthma attack. <laughs> um, 
So I, I think uh, the menacing laugh must be in one of the manuscript variants because I don't remember reading it. Well, I mean, it's in the manuscript that I found privately. Mm-hmm. I'll keep it to myself, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually does make a good voyage to Iceland, but once he gets there, he's not exactly laser-focused on carrying out the king's orders. He actually goes to Reykjavik, where his cousins Thorgils and Ilugi Arason live, and hires a slightly disreputable builder named Veglak to help him build the hall. Because yeah. that's what outlaws do when they're in Iceland. They're like, let's right. build a hall. And let's be clear, this is not like a clever cover for his real operation. No, no, he just wants a hall. Um, yeah. And they spend the entire summer on this, and they do complete the hall. Mm-hmm. Um it's described as a fairly significant piece of architecture, actually. Um, it's got paneled walls and floorboards, and it's a, a large open space without any dividing walls inside. Mm-hmm. And the author tells us that it was still standing in the time of Magnus Gizarason, who was mm-hmm. bishop at Skalholt. Yeah, I'm starting to get echoes of Thord Menace here. Aren't you, though? Uh, though no, no one actually says that Thorgir's Hall is good, uh, just that it lasted a long time. Oh, it's a it's a well built eyesore. Okay, it doesn't say that. Uh, well, it doesn't say it's not. So, so who's to say? Uh, while they're busy building a hall, everyone else in the area has forgotten about the incident with Thorger. Uh, until one day, the following winter, when Thorger and Veglak uh, ride to the farm at Hrofa and knock on the door. So many door knocking scenes in the saga. Just I knock. know. Uh, a serving woman reports the men to Thorger and says. I believe that's Thorgir Haverson out there. And Thorir, who apparently has heard something about Thorgir's habits when visiting farms, grabs his spear and ostentatiously rests its point in the doorway while he greets his guests. Smart man. I'm here to find out whether you intend to repay King Olaf for the shameful deed you committed on his follower. Why is that your concern? Are you a party to this matter? Well, I am now. I'm here on the king's behalf. Yeah. You might be here as the king's representative, but uh, I'm not sure these are the king's words I'm hearing. Well, it's true that you don't hear him speaking personally. But it may well be that you're going to feel his power anyway. And then he thrusts his spear into Thorir's chest before uh, Thorir can even react. I mean, he had his spear right there in the doorway. This is, this is becoming dangerously close to being a signature move, isn't it? He kills people in doorways? Well, with a, with a sudden move? spear thrust through, through the chest while talking to them, yeah. It's at least his second guy uh, like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, he, he doesn't even give them a chance to fight back, really. It's a, it's, a, it's a little generic for him to patent it, but it's definitely Thorger's go-to move. And oh, definitely. It's kind of an underhanded way of killing people, but maybe I'm just prejudiced Not, at this yeah. point. Well, if it works, it works, John. You can't argue with results. And neither can uh-huh. Thorir, since they leave him dead on his own doorstep <laughs> and return to Reykjavik. Yeah, and to no one's great surprise, Thormod immortalizes even this somewhat underwhelming assassination with a verse. I think we can, it's nice that he's keeping yeah, track of know, his friends. I think we can skip this one, except to note that he comes up with two more kennings about what a great skipper Thorgir is. He calls, no yeah, he calls him the skillful thane of the board's raven. And the steerer of the board stallion. Well, I, he also makes a point of celebrating how Thorgir speared his victim so beautifully to death. <laughs> Thormwater is so really beautiful. the guy you want writing your PR, yeah. isn't he? He really knows how to 
sell this shoddy merchandise <laughs> that is Thorgear's life. Because it sounds yeah, great. Yeah, no, if you just read the Thormod version, he sounds fantastic. Uh well, it's almost like, you know, it's almost like, you know, Thormod writes this beautiful poem celebrating his friend's deeds, but the saga writer's like, nah, I'm going <laughs> to yeah, use your poem yeah. as my source to confirm this is reality, but I'm going to show who he really mm-hmm. is, which is a complete asshole. Right. Uh, so now pull up a chair, young ones, and I'll tell you the true story of Thorger Haverson. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, there's really nothing in the way of repercussions for this killing. Uh, And there are a few potential reasons for that. Uh, One is that it might be seen as a legitimate, if severe, response to Thor's assault on Olaf's man. That that was still hanging out there since there had been no compensation. Uh, Now, there would be some legal distinctions that could be made there, but only if someone's willing to take up the case and the risk in order to argue those distinctions. Yeah, especially given uh, Olaf's kind of threat, yeah. threatening attitude towards yeah. Iceland at this stage. Um, there's also the problem that Thorgeir is already an outlaw. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember, the settlement over Thorgeir killing Bjarni Skuvason happened partly because everyone knew and accepted that Thorgeir had been outlawed for the killing of Thorgils Marson. At this point, unless someone can actually attack and kill him, Thorgeir's opponents are really limited in what they can do about him. Yeah. Similar to what happened with Gretchen. Right, yeah. Thorger's becoming sand in the machine of the Icelandic social contract. A candy bar in the gas sure. tank. Or that. It's a colorful past. Do people put candy bar? Sugar in the gas tank? I mean, I don't know. I mean, what whatever, I'm you wanna, about, whatever you want to really. stick in there. It's all good. A banana? Uh, that oh, that goes in the tailpipe. There. Uh, if, if Beverly Hills oh, Cop right. taught me anything, it's that uh, bananas go in the tailpipe. But, uh, that's right. Yeah. Now, there's another issue here, though, uh, that, that's going to complicate the way the story would, would have landed for its original audience, I think. Thorgir is now working for King Olaf. Right? He's an agent yeah. of the Norwegian crown. And he's just executed an Icelander in Iceland, in his own house, for the crime of winning a fight with a Norwegian. Sure, yeah. This is a 13th century text. And the question of who was or wasn't complicit in Iceland's eventual submission to Norway... Mm-hmm would have been a current events kind of question. It's Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you, you mentioned uh, Snorri Sturluson earlier, uh, right? This is yeah. this is not that far away from the way that Snorri died, right? A, assassin, an assassin all. sent from Norway uh, to take care of business uh, so that everyone knows to fear the king of Norway, uh, even in yeah. their own homes in Iceland. Uh, it's hard mm-hmm. to imagine an Icelandic audience being neutral about a saga figure who assassinates Icelanders on the say-so of a Norwegian king. Of course, I mean, we also have to read this in its Christian context. Mm-hmm. Olaf is a pretty well-regarded figure in that context, and so acting on his behalf might be different than working for, say, someone like Eric Bloodaxe. Yeah, that's fair, but it's it's also a nuance that might be lost in the whole killing Icelanders for Norway part of the equation. Uh, yeah. For me, at least, this feels like part of that ongoing alienation of the reader from Thorger as a sympathetic figure. Yeah, I mean, I think the connections with Snorri Sturluson, uh, they're, to me, they're pretty overt yeah. here. Um, or if not Snorri Sturluson, someone else in that mm-hmm. time period. I mean, we're talking about the 13th century here. Uh, this is a, uh, a saga that is the product either of the 13th century or just after the chaos mm-hmm. of the 13th century. Icelandic audiences know uh, this story very, very well. And Thorgeir, yeah. he really doesn't come off great in this context. Yeah. And it really, at this point, um, we're just kind of piling on the reasons not to care for this man. 
Yeah, exactly. But it is odd, given how many sagas present Olaf in such a positive mm-hmm. light, that this one would... Well, I guess this one uses Thorgeir, not Olaf. Right. Uh, Olaf still is the, the, the premier king of Christianity. Um, but he's using an agent who is is suspect at at his core. Right. Although we have seen um, before, we've seen other sagas uh, where you have figures who uh, Norwegian kings who are uh, associated with Christianity or even uh, with uh, uh, conversion, and yet are depicted as being pretty bloodthirsty and pretty uncompromising with their enemies. Yeah. That's, that's true. I think that's Icelanders true. are sort of are at this point are very much able to keep both of those balls in the air when it comes to thinking about Norwegian Christian kingship. Yeah, I think so. And and part of that may be that Christianity at that time was looked is just the values of Christianity at the time are very different from uh well, I guess the values of Christianity shift on a daily basis. So Well, they certainly hard to in, say. in Scandinavia in the thirteenth century, it looks very different uh than it would now, right? Or than it would in the fourteenth century or in the uh, 18th century, right? It's, it's it's building its own traditions as it goes, and this is still early enough in the existence of the church in the north that things like um, the the pre-Christian traditions of revenge killings and that kind of thing, they still have purchase mm-hmm. culturally. Uh, so definitely, they're they're definitely. I don't know. It's hard to say. It's hard to say how all those different things weigh out. But I I can't believe that. A Norwegian king dispatching an assassin to kill an Icelander in Iceland would sit well. Yeah, exactly. And and the the only other thing I want to say about this would be that there, you know, any argument about oral versus a kind of written literary narratives, um, it's stuff like this that really lends itself to support the idea that while the sagas may be based in an oral tradition and these stories might evolve from the stories of things that may have happened in the time of the settlement and beyond. Uh, once you get into moments like this and description, the things that are happening like this, the, the sagas become so political and so relevant to the 13th and early 14th century experience of Icelanders that it's really hard to say that it's just a purely oral story right. that was passed down to generation right. to generation and then written down. Right. It's it, These are stories that were passed down, but then are... Uh, kind of adapted to speak to the experiences of the people that live at that particular time. Right, and this is why whenever um, you get too extreme arguing for either the oral or the written form for the sagas, you're probably edging out on a fairly thin branch. Right, that yeah, that exactly. ultimately the story is it's a very sort of complicated and interlaced set of traditions that uh, that borrow from both oral and literary culture. Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, but before we go into a whole long, long digression on that, let's just say this. You know, that's how we th- we, we see it. Um, Thorgeir's business in Iceland is done now. Mm-hmm. But uh, John, he's not leaving yet, despite well, his outlawry and other activities. Why would he leave? He's, he's got done. that nice new hall in Reykjavik, which he and Vegla exactly. built for some reason. It's, uh, it's time for a bit of R&R at his new vacation lodge. Well, yeah, uh, about that. Part 10, The Case of the Trunk Thief. So now that he's finished his six-month game of cat and mouse and hall building, Mm -hmm. it's high time for Thorgeir to get out of Iceland as quick as possible, right? I mean, he's technically an outlaw, like we said. Uh, Let's not be hasty. Uh, What's a little thing like a sentence of exile from one's homeland? No, 
Thorger and Veglok decide not to risk the winter weather, so they spend the entire winter at Rekuholer with Thorger's cousins. Uh, but they aren't there long before a scandal breaks out. Yes, there's a thief afoot. Indeed there is. Uh, there's someone is getting into people's trunks and stealing small but valuable items. Hmm. And no matter how well locked the trunks are, nothing is safe from the thief. And the mysterious thing is that none of the locks are broken. Mm -hmm. The trunks are found still securely locked, but valuables keep disappearing. Exactly. It's a classic of the whodunit genre, the locked room mystery, except with trunks. Mm -hmm. And next thing you know, there's a knock at the door Mm. and there's two boys there. They call themselves the Hardisons. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Oh, God. No. Oh, God. Really? You couldn't go for some kind of Encyclopedia Brown reference or maybe a Sherlock Holmes? The Encyclopedia Holmes? I mean, Brown Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes has got Watson. It's right there for you. It's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. No. Uh, meanwhile, Thorgir and Veglak have only recently arrived mm-hmm. and don't have the best reputation. So, obviously, suspicion is going to fall on them first. Right. Which means... They'll need all their wits about them if they want to solve the case before someone finds a way to pin the blame on them. Hmm. Very interesting. Actually, they they don't have a chance to solve anything, or at least we're not told about that. It's Thorgir's cousin, Thorgils Arison, who is going to take control of the situation. Mm -hmm. He has his brother call the entire household together. Servants, guests, family, everyone. So, uh... We're just skipping right to the part of the mystery where he gathers everyone together in the drawing room and reveals the identity of the villain. Yes, yeah. yes. He brings the butler forward. Uh-huh. No. Um, the there's butler. usually some... E- yeah, no. There's there's usually some evidence gathering or something. Uh, maybe a few red herrings along the way, nope. but no. None of that. Straight to puffing on a meerschaum pipe and wrapping things up. See, the, yes. the problem is that Thorgils is a practical sort. He, uh... He can't be bothered amassing evidence or tracking down leads. No. He doesn't care whether there are telltale footprints under the dining room window. Exactly. He doesn't care what the dog did in the nighttime. He just says... No, he doesn't. Look, everyone knows a bunch of things have been stolen this winter. And most of what was taken was under lock and key. And no one's left the farm. So, what we're going to do, we're going to thoroughly inspect everyone's trunks. First... Mine and Elugi's, and then everyone else's. And if we don't find anything, then we'll go to the neighboring farms and we'll search there. Mm. So they're doing this high school style. Yep. Time for a good old-fashioned locker inspection. Pretty much. And as they go through the trunks, they're not finding anything. Uh But one man in particular hasn't volunteered his trunk for inspection. Right. Uh, Veglak the carpenter has an extra large trunk. And he's standing in front of it looking nervous. Uh, And Thorgils demands that Veglak open his trunk for inspection. I've never been subject to being searched like a thief. And I won't be opening my trunk. (laughs) Look, you're not the only one in this. Our chests were all searched and you'll have to comply like everyone else. I don't care whether you searched all the others. I'm not opening up my trunk. Uh, and at this point, Ilugi Arison gets to his feet and says, everyone here sounds like a cheap pirate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, Ilugi gets to his feet and pulls out an axe. 
I have a key here that opens all locks, and I'm going to open it. Oh, oh yeah. Fuck. <clears throat> I have a key here that opens all locks, and I'm going to use it to open your lock if you don't do it yourself. And clearly, at this point, no one there is going to support Veglock. No. <laughs> he's kind of... <laughs> he's, I mean, he's, he's flop-sweating and... He's more or less <laughs> giving himself up, yeah. Uh, so, he gives in and opens the chest. Yeah. And sure enough, some of the stolen items are right there, mm-hmm. along with a ring of skeleton keys that can open any lock in the place. Oof. I, uh, I don't suppose anyone would buy that it's circumstantial evidence? No, no, I don't think they would. Yeah, no. um, and Veglog realizes at this point that his only chance is to cooperate, so he shows them where he's hidden the rest of the stolen treasures. Yeah, he's not exactly a master thief. Nah, but, you know, he, he you know, gave no. the old call, let's try. No, no, no one has come or gone from the farm, and he's one of two guys who arrived just before the theft started. Yeah, and, and he's got this giant trunk with a a special padlock on it. Mm-hmm. You have to wonder how he thought this was going to end. Right. Uh, and on top of everything else, he's committed the classic blunder of confessing before getting a promise of clemency. <laughs> yes, he has. Uh, and he's misjudged his chances for mercy because Lugi at this point says, well, I reckon Veglog deserves to die for this. So obviously we should hang him. Mm-hmm. Hang him like a thief, right? Mm-hmm. But what Veglog lacks in thieving skill and basic intelligence, he makes up by having Thorgair on his side. Mm. You wouldn't dispose of your own farmhand in this matter, would you? Well, yes, I would, because it'd be wrong to let a thief get away with what he's done. Well, in this instance, the right course of action might prove too costly for you, because this man would come at a high price. He will not... Be executed if I have any say in the matter. Well, you're a great defender of thieves, aren't you? But this one will cause you grief, and your pledge will not always save him, even if he escapes justice now. Get him out of here now. Hmm. So Thorgar and Veglog leave that morning. Obviously without Veglog's trunk. Right. Um, and <laughs> Thorgar lighter, has a lighter as they travel. Yeah, yeah. And Thorgar has burned yet another bridge. Yeah. He has fewer and fewer friends in yeah. Iceland. Well, there is still one person he can call on. Uh, remember, at the start of this episode, we said Thormod wasn't cutting off all ties to Thorgar. He just doesn't trust him anymore and doesn't want to travel with him. Yeah. So he just turns up at Thormod's dad's farm with a known thief in tow and asks for a place to crash for a while. It's a little presumptuous. Yeah, there there is one thing, because when he knocks on the door, Thormod comes out to greet them. And Thormod's clearly been busy because he's got a badly injured and heavily bandaged right arm, and mm. his eyes are red and sore looking. And that's a bit of a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. Admittedly, it's a cliffhanger we sort of artificially created by reorganizing the chapters a bit. Yes, we did. Uh, but a cliffhanger nonetheless. I promise you it's clever, though, if you <laughs> if you know what, what we're doing here. Uh, so clever. our next episode will be dedicated to the story of what Thormod's been up to all this time and what happened to his arm and his eyes. Well, clearly it's been going great. Yeah. So to wrap this up, he lets Thorgar and his thief friends stay for the winter. You know, it's actually even worse than that. Uh, Thorgar is not staying. He's just dropping Veglog off there for the winter. And he's... <laughs> 
planning to come back this, in the spring and collect him when he leaves Iceland. Yeah. Here, can you watch my petty thief for me? I've got some <laughs> stuff to do. Right. I, yeah, I don't want to leave him at my house for obvious reasons. So <laughs> right. If right. you don't mind. Yeah. Uh, oh, we can tie up one loose end here. Uh, Thorger does indeed collect Veglog uh, in the spring and gets him out of Iceland, but they only travel together as far as the Orkneys. Mm. Uh, At that point, Veglog decides to try his luck in Scotland. Presumably because no one knows he's a thief there. Mm -hmm. Or at least they don't know at first. At first. Because, uh, yeah, as the saga tells us, Veglog went to Scotland, where he became a notorious thief and was later killed. Oops. Um, well, there that is. Uh, I mean, at least he managed to become a notorious thief rather than just an I incompetent mean, one. Uh, he's known. Hey, I, uh, I think ultimately we can say Veglog just chose the wrong profession. <laughs> he sure did. Uh, rest in peace, you crazy crook. Uh, excellent. So, Andy, remember at the top of the episode, we said that this part of the saga really uh, splits into two different genres. Yes, uh, Thorgar is following an outlaw hero narrative, maybe minus the hero part. Mm-hmm. And Thormod, uh, which we haven't seen, is becoming a warrior poet. Yes, and we we won't really be able to go into this comparison until, obviously, until we've seen Thormod's side of things. But you can already see Thorgar's story following in the lines of the outlaw heroes. Yes. He's sort of part Greta Esmundersen and part Horth Grimkilsen. He's got... Greta's misanthropy and tendency to drive people away, and Horv's trajectory of going deeper and deeper into moral decay. And his outlawry is kicked off because he kills a well-connected man, which Mm -hmm. is true of multiple outlaws in the sagas. Mm -hmm. It's not completely derivative, though, I think it's worth noting. Um, Thorgar's adding a slightly unhinged element that's that's really all his own. Sure. Good job, Thorgar. Yeah, it's it, it's set pieces, but each author will deploy them slightly differently. And yeah. this author is definitely leaning on the device of Thorgar as a morally ambiguous outlaw. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something we can track as we cover the rest of his career. Okay, uh, anything else for today? Well, that was an abrupt ending, uh, but ending <laughs> it is. Um, okay, well, the uh, the first thing we need to do is to wish Alex and Jane from Scotland, the land of uh, Veglog's death, um, uh, we need to wish them a happy anniversary. Absolutely. Happy anniversary, Alex and Jane. Andy, who are Alex and Jane? Uh, well, Alex is a beardy physicist with a passion for history and saga thing, and, and Jane's a cultural history nerd with no beard at all. Is that confirmed? Um, no, I, I can't confirm that. I just assumed no beard. Well, you know what they say about assuming. <laughs> Indeed. I'm sorry, Jane. Apologies if you do have a beard. And I'm, I am I am dreadfully sorry uh, for assuming that you keep yourself clean shaven. Apologies. Uh, I think you also, Alex, an apology. Uh, maybe you're assuming he hath a beard. Well, I, I know he hath a beard because Jane told me that he hath a beard. Oh, well, fair enough. Um, Thus I, then, a beard. Then There you go. Very good. Now, uh, help me with uh, one other small detail. Okay. Uh, what do you need to know? When was their anniversary exactly? I, uh, I uh-huh. seem to recall you mentioning yeah. something about this a while ago. So uh, uh, when? You, you want to know when, when the anniversary was? Uh, yeah. Once a year, I assume, is the answer. 
That's true, but I, I don't think, you know, if you really think about it, John, I don't mm. know if the date of the anniversary is really important. What is important is that their love for each other lasts the whole year round. Uh-huh. That's 365 days of loving, John. It's a beautiful thing. Come on now. <laughs> 365 days of loving. That that seems like a, a lesser known album from a band in the 70s. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, there's definitely some feathered hair going right, on. Right, exactly. Uh, happy anniversary, Alex and Jane. We we hope it was a good one. Um, each year, <laughs> whether it's uh, whether we're closer to the next one or closer to the past one, we hope it's a good one. I mean, we're right in. You know, we're. I don't know. It was in March, John. Oh, there it is. Yeah. All right. Uh, <laughs> are you ready for a quick dive into the uh, the old rune sack? Absolutely. Uh, why don't we Why don't we both do one tonight? Okay, that's a good plan. All right. Um, uh, well, let's see. You go first. Um, okay, here's one. This will be good for you. Okay. Uh, the first question is from Leah, who writes, First off, thank you both so much for the podcast. I'm an emergency nurse with a background in math and physics, so I did not take many English or literature classes in school. Your podcast has not only introduced me to the Icelandic sagas, but also opened my eyes to medieval history and literary theory. You guys are absolutely responsible for all the time I now spend down the rabbit hole uncovering this whole exciting new area. Yikes. I even decided to read Njal's saga after listening to your shows covering it. Uh, I mean, that's that's really, <laughs> really amazing. That's Leia. great. That's the kind of thing we want to hear. That's great. Uh, if you could send a, a note to that effect to our respective administrations, that'd be great. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, now, uh, the, the email continues. Uh, now, my question. In the scene where the Njalsons and Asgrim uh, are touring the Althing, visiting booths and attempting to gather support after the murder of Hoskold, I was struck by how everyone referred to Scarpathen as the fifth man in line. Mm-hmm. I was curious if the number five is significant either in the sagas of Iceland or, or in Icelandic mysticism. Perhaps the number is unlucky or associated with fate in some way. And that's a really interesting question. I've never thought of it anything like is. that. But um, John, first of, what do you think? Yeah, hi, Leah. Uh, and that's first why I'm going to put it on you because uh, I don't you. have any idea. Yeah, great. Uh, first of all, Leah, thank you for uh, the work that you've been doing as an emergency room nurse this past year. I'm sure that's absolutely that's been that's been a rough road to hoe. I'm glad we were able to, in some way, provide you with some entertainment. Um, the the short answer is that there's no obvious significance. Uh, Scarpathen's position in the group is not pivotal to the narrative, so much as it's just a way to identify him out of the group. When the the brothers and their allies leave their booth to seek support, they travel single file, and we're given Scarpathen's place in the line so that we can keep track of him later, when everyone spots him as an ill-omened man. Uh, that association of Scarpathen with a faded or unlucky man—that's the—that's the real the real meat of that, right? That's mm-hmm. made many times in the saga. Only here is it connected with the number five. Uh, the only other significant reference to the number five in Yal saga that I could find is that it's uh, that there are several references to the fact that the Njalsons number five when they uh, uh, ambush the Thrain uh, Sigvason. Uh, so it's it's that's the only time that it, it comes up again. Uh, so nothing on the surface, but if we really want to dig deep, there are some hints that five might be an important number more broadly. We know that five had great symbolic utility in medieval writing as the number of fingers and toes on the default human hand or foot, for example. And so it sometimes served as synecdoche for the body with its five appendages. 
Uh, Sir Gowan's five fives, his knightly perfections, include being perfect in his five fingers, meant to signify his bodily perfection more generally. Okay, yeah, I mean, we can go into Pierce Plowman and Sir Gawain and Green Knight, mm-hmm. but, I mean, you're casting a pretty wide net that's uh, that's how you catch very the big fish, relevant Eddie. to 14th century English poetry now. Yeah. And I think you, you've you've wandered off the yellow brick road rather far, Dorothy. You want to get back uh, on that? Uh, well, uh, to return to my breadcrumbs, uh, there are a few references to five in the Eddas as a significant number, although nothing that seems especially relevant to Scarpathen. The tricky part about this kind of analysis, I think, is that it so often comes down to special pleading. I could probably make a case for any number having symbolic significance if you just Mm. look at its use across a corpus of literature. Uh, Li Tang, for example, uh, examined the numbers 3, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12, 13, and 18 in saga and Eddic writing and found significance to them all. Uh, and then singled out the number five as being outside of the study, but still symbolically meaningful. Hmm. Uh, any number can be freighted with meaning if we decide it is. Uh, or, and this is to Leia's point, if the author decides it is, if the author gives it significance. And you're quite right that the author does seem to be emphasizing five as a signifier in Scarpathen's fate. So the longer answer is that there may be some meaning to the position that doesn't come through for us, or at least for me, but that was intended. So there's a long way of going to say that you don't really have an answer. Is that right? Cynic. There is an answer. It's just inconclusive. Inconclusive (laughs) is an answer, Andy. All right. Uh, So thank you, Leah. Uh, I realize that's not a satisfying answer, but it's the the best one we have in stock. Um, All right. Here's a here's one from Patrick, who's an animator and illustrator, and uh, unsurprisingly, his questions about visual depictions and descriptions. He writes, "I was listening and reading along to your episodes on Barth Saga, and was surprised to have Odin described as having a red mustache. Apparently, he's also described as having red hair and a beard in Arrowod Saga too. As far as I can tell, the description of Odin with a gray beard seems to be Odin's old man disguise." as Grimm or Harbard. Presumably, Odin in his undisguised form is kept youthful by Idun's apples. So I was wondering if you know of any other saga appearances of Odin where he appears in a less Gandalfy way. <laughs> Good, okay. Thanks for the question, Patrick. Um, um, John, thank you uh, for giving me the, the heavy one here. Um, this is... <laughs> there's a lot to say Really, here. I had... To, uh, you gave me a question where I had to say, "Oh no." <laughs> yeah, but you 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 know, you strung out, I don't know, into a, like a, this, you know, big long thing. I actually have I've s- made some a career out of I it, can, Andy. I have some th- <laughs> <laughs> But there, there's a bunch we could say about Odin and his various disguises and sure. appearances. Um I'm going to feel free uh, by by necessity limit myself to a few points and one uh, disturbing warning uh but interesting example. Um, so the first thing, Patrick, you're right about Odin. Uh, he does appear in Eroad Saga. Um, that's a legendary saga that we aren't going to be covering here on Saga Thing, but it's a good one, and I highly recommend it. Now, in that saga, Od uh, meets a man described as follows. It says, He saw a man walking, wearing a blue-flecked cloak, and 
and high shoes and carrying a reed sprout in his hand. He wore golden gloves, was a medium uh, was of a medium height and was of noble appearance. He let the hood of his cloak fall in front of his face. He had a large mustache and a long beard, both of which were red. And guess what his name was, John? It was Rauthgrani. I, or- I was going to say Rauthgrani, yes, you you will remember that from mm-hmm. our nickname section of Barth Saga, or at least one of the nicknames in Barth Saga that you maybe referenced. I don't remember, but uh, red mustache, red mm-hmm. mustache, Rauthgrani. Um, his appearance in Barth Saga is actually quite similar. Um, there, he is described as a one-eyed man in a blue spotted cape with a hood, and just like in Arrowod Saga, he calls himself Rauthgrani. Uh, suggesting that he's got a red facial hair. But of course, that is just one of many appearances that Odin takes on. Uh, it's important to note that actual appearances by Odin, um, they're very rare in the sagas, especially if we're talking about the sagas of Icelanders. I mean, mm-hmm. think about all the sagas that we've covered so far, John, right? Uh, how many times has Odin appeared? Very, very few. Uh, he's referenced yeah. every once in a while, yeah. especially during the conversion sections, but... He doesn't actually show up and mm-hmm. get a description um, very much. Um, the only one that comes to mind, if I think about it, is Horth Saga, uh, which we covered recently. Um, there he appears in the figure of a man who offers helpful advice to Horth, offers a useful sword for breaking into Solti the Viking's mound. And in that scene, he also appears dressed in a black striped hooded tunic calling himself Bjorn. Right. Now, outside the sagas of the Icelanders, you're going to find him popping up in the legendary sagas, like Arrowod Saga or the Saga of the Volsungs, for example, where he mm-hmm. appears in the hall as an old man with one eye wearing a mottled cape with a hood. Uh, mm-hmm. And it seemed, you know, the more I look, you know, looked into this, the more I thought, you know, that striped, spotted, or mottled cape seems to be part of the iconography for quite a while in Icelandic literature. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also appears in Hervarar Saga and in Gautrek Saga, but uh, I don't think that there's a description there. I don't recall exactly, right. but I, I don't remember a description. Right. I mean, it's not surprising that he would show up more often in those legendary sagas, right? I mean, this yeah. is, uh, yeah. you know, most authors of the sagas are Christian and in many cases are institutionally Christian, right? Are people who are in the church. Yes. Um, that, the stories of the pagan gods are more safely placed into lying sagas, right? Into right. legendary sagas. Uh, mm-hmm. they're, it's much more uncomfortable to, tr- to try to place them in the more history-focused, or at least the more history-seeming sagas that you're writing about. Exactly. Iceland. Yeah. And, and, you know, speaking uh, about the history um, or the, the, the variety of sources that we have, I mean, we could say an awful lot about the evolving appearance of Odin. And I think we could definitely get into mm-hmm. kind of once we get into the 18th century and the early 19th century, just these depictions of Odin um, as uh, Europe is kind of or Germanic Europe or pseudo Germanic Europe is kind of trying to identify itself. We could talk a lot about that, but um, I think we're going to stick to the written sources that are relevant to the period. Um, and I know I've talked a, a little bit long here, but I, I want to share this one really interesting example of Odin in disguise that I honestly, okay. I don't know where we'll ever get to mention anywhere else in this podcast. So um, if you bear with me, here it goes. It's kind of cool stuff, but disturbing. 
Now, if you look into Saxogrammaticus Gesta Denorum, you'll find a strange story of Odin adopting multiple disguises to seduce a young woman named Rinda. Now, he does this because he has heard from the soothsayers that the son he will have with Rinda will go on to avenge the death of Balder. And I think everyone listening to this podcast must be familiar with the story of Balder. And because this is so important to him, he loved Balder so much, he pursues Rinda aggressively in a style that is reminiscent of Zeus. And yes, if you know the stories of Zeus, this will all fit together. Now, first he disguises himself as a warrior and quickly is appointed as Rinda's father's general in the army. And with her father's consent, after many great victories, um, Odin approaches Arinda, but she rejects him with a slap. So frustrated, he uh, Odin leaves and returns again in the guise of a blacksmith. And he once again tries to gain her favor, this time by crafting a beautiful bracelet and other jewelry for her. But he's rebuffed again with mm-hmm. another slap. The young woman explains to her father that uh, it would be inappropriate for her to give herself to such an old man, even though the father's pressing her to um, submit to him. So Odin leaves and tries again, this time taking on the disguise of a veteran warrior. He he tries to kiss her later in this in this series of him, you know, acting as a veteran and impressing everyone. Uh, and when he tries to kiss her, um, she pushes him away so hard that he falls down and scrapes his chin on the floor. And you know, Odin's not too happy about this. He's you made been Odin rebuffed. bleed his own blood. Yes, and he's been rebuffed three times. Um, and so now he's going to hatch a plot to get what he wants. And and so he disguises himself now as a woman called Veka, and he claims to be a physician. And the goal here is to get within within sight, get close to Rinda, as close as he can. And indeed, as a female physician, he is able to work his way into the, the queen's mm-hmm. entourage. And as a member of the queen's entourage, he's soon given charge of the young princess. And so he enjoys washing her feet and washing her thighs, even going up to her upper thighs, but never really reveals himself or makes a move to claim the thing that he wants, which is to impregnate her with this son that will avenge Balder. Mm-hmm. Until one day, Rinda conveniently gets sick. And there's no implication that Odin makes her get sick. She just mm-hmm. gets sick. And as a physician, Vekka, that's Odin's female physician um, identity that he's created, um, she knows exactly how to cure the young princess. And so he, he explains to the father, the only medicine that could possibly cure Rinda is so bitter and so nasty that the girl has to be tied down in the bed when it is administered because she will react so violently to it. And the father, hoping to save his daughter's life, agrees readily and urges everyone to let the physician do her work without any interruption. And so oh, then in disguise of this female physician, now begins working on this young princess. And as he does so, he he seizes the opportunity. He takes advantage of Rinda's weakened state because she's, again, very ill. Mm -hmm. And he forces himself upon her, fathering the child that he so badly wanted. It's not a scene that is described in any detail, but it's very clear that Saxo Grammaticus is uncomfortable with it, as anyone would be. And he, uh, Saxo Grammaticus adds, 
when the people of Asgard discovered this terrible transgression, Mm -hmm. um, this despicable behavior by Odin, they convict him for this. They exile him from Asgard, um, taking him, removing him from his position as Lord of, of the, of the gods. Um, and all of this, this is is not, this is not the Greek gods, right? This is a very different kind of myth cycle. Definitely, definitely. And they have laws and rules and, and they find what Odin did, um, to be, um, such a great transgression that it deserves, uh, uh, an exile. And, um, he is exiled for at least 10 years before they forgive him. Um, so Patrick, uh, you wanted some stories about Odin in disguise. Uh, you got them. Uh, I hope you're happy. All right. Uh, so that's going to do it for now. Uh, We will be back in a couple of weeks with the story of what exactly has been happening to Thormod over the last few years. Uh, for now, thanks for following along with us, and please let us know what you're making of Thorgir and his unorthodox approach to being a protagonist. Yes, uh, we'd love to hear from you, and we try to get to as many of your questions and comments as we can. Um, not always in a timely manner, because we're sometimes saving them for the podcast itself. Um, but please uh, send us your questions and comments. If if you want to reach us, you can find us on Twitter at SagaThingPod or on Facebook, where we are SagaThingPodcast. We also have our email address, SagaThingPodcast at gmail.com. And we occasionally, uh, we can be found on Instagram, we are also, where we are also SagaThingPodcast. And uh, if none of that works for you, you can try to find us on MySpace, LiveJournal, GeoCities, Vine, or wherever else the ghosts of Internet's past haunt the forgotten search histories of your middle-aged uncle. Wow. All right. Uh, That's all for now. Um, I want to thank Jacob Faust for another amazing uh, illustration. Um, This one is of (laughs) Thorgir diving through the roof. (laughs) Uh, after um, his victims. Um, You can find more from uh, Jacob on uh, Scarpathan underscore illustrator at Instagram. Um, It's great stuff. Uh, He's also got an Etsy if you want to get pictures or t-shirts. Good stuff. I actually have a t-shirt that I made from one of his drawings. I'll I'll have to share that on uh, social media soon. It's it's pretty cool. Um, I'm excited about this picture because uh, it's there are times when I'm reading the saga for the episode that we're doing and I I spot a moment and I say, oh, that's the moment that he's going to end up drawing. Exactly. Uh, And I was absolutely right this time. Yeah, yeah. And and honestly, I like the picture enough that I might make that one into a t-shirt too. <laughs> um, but, but great. Okay, so we will be back soon. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. That's fine. That's fine. We can all just sit in uh, a contemplative silence for a while. Okay. Maybe well, maybe think about the text. See what we want to do next. Okay. I mean, let's think about it then. <laughs> it's a good opportunity for us to commune with ourselves. I'm gonna I'm gonna get a little beer. Maybe do a little gargling. You let me know when you're ready. You gargle your beer. <sighs> Delightful. Okay. All right.